It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Kyle Krabs here, host of Locked On NFL Scouting. Join Joe Marino and me every day as we provide position-by-position analysis of the upcoming NFL Draft. Check out the Locked On NFL Scouting podcast with the Draft Dudes on YouTube or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Locked On Podcast Network and State Farm present Paving the Way, a new series highlighting important voices across Locked On's network. Every month, our host Kanani Stevens will showcase other Locked On hosts who come from underserved communities to hear the challenges they face to become a sports broadcast personality. Who will be paving the way this episode? Find out now. The Locked On Podcast Network and State Farm are presenting Paving the Way, a new series highlighting important voices across Locked On's network. Every month, we will showcase other Locked On hosts who come from underserved communities to hear the challenges they face to become a sports broadcast personality. I'm your host, Kainani Stevens. On this edition, we will feature our Locked On Yankees host, Stacey Gatsoulias, who grew up a huge Yankees fan in New York, and now she gets to cover her favorite team every day. Stacey, we're so happy to have you here with us on Paving the Way. We like to kind of start with people's backgrounds, see, you know, how you came up and, and as a child, like what really drew you to sports and, and what got you into sports when you were a kid? It's my dad's fault. I was the firstborn and, you know, even though I was a girl, he still got me sporty things for Christmas mm-hmm. and birthdays and I would sit on his lap and watch everything literally from soccer to bowling for dollars, basketball, hockey, you know, obviously baseball, but baseball was the main sport that we bonded through. So Mm -hmm. that's how I got my love of sports. It's really my dad's fault. Baseball is cool because it's on so often, right? It feels like it's really like a fabric of your life. I know um, I grew up in New England, so I always watch Red Sox, but I'm sure for you, obviously, uh, mm-hmm. you follow the Yankees. So can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, it, it, it's not just like every Sunday. It's, it really feels like a fabric of your life because it's on every night. Yeah. And you know, my dad was also a Little League coach. So baseball was really a thing for us. Um, he bought me my first glove. He bought me my first set of baseball cards. He took me to my first Yankee games. I was lucky enough to attend a double header for my first time at Yankee Stadium. And they swept the Blue Jays. It was August of 1983. And I fell in love with live baseball. I loved watching it on TV, but being there in person was so different and so exciting. And everything seemed so much bigger and brighter. And I just fell in love with it right away. It's totally different in person. I think that having that and been there that really drives you as a kid right because you're like oh this is what it is and like even when you watch it or listen to it on the radio you understand because you've been there before and you've been to you know historic parks like that um can you tell us a little bit well where you grew up in new york and, and kind of who maybe some of your sports idols were as a kid well i was born in manhattan we moved to the suburbs when i was four and sports idols um my first favorite yankee was greg nettles then i moved to dave rigetti and then don mattingly was it once he came up and once he became big he was the man for me um and that's how it was when you grew up in new york and a yankee fan it was either don mattingly or dave winfield during that time and my brother was a winfield person and i was a mattingly person and you know when they were battling for the batting title in 84 it was uh quite a fun time in this house between me and my brother fighting back and forth and Mattingly ultimately won that. Um, I also love Joe Montana, which caused some strife in this house because um, 
I'll, t- I'll reveal right now, the boy I liked in elementary school liked Joe Montana. So I decided in second grade to like Joe Montana and my giant fan father was not very happy about that. So <laughs> all the way through high school, we were just constantly battling it out during NFL games. It was kind of funny. <laughs> we all get our weird allegiances and I completely understand. Obviously, Joe Montana is not a bad person to be a fan of because exactly that time too. I mean, it's terms as far as success goes, that was definitely fun to watch. Um <laughs> Uh, I know we talked a little bit about baseball. Do you feel like that was your main sport always as a kid or did you kind of love everything? I did love everything, but yeah, baseball was the one that I went to the most. You know, I didn't go to my first NBA game until I was in college. Didn't go to my first NFL game until I was in my thirties. So um, yeah, baseball was it for me. Did you play sports as a kid too, or did you just kind of watch and, and follow everything? I wanted to, but I am legally blind in my left eye. I'm also a righty. My mom was terrified that, you know, the ball would come from the side and hit me in the head. So she never allowed me to play baseball, never allowed me to play softball. I was a Pop Warner cheerleader for four years and our uh, group won first place in our division in 1985, which was pretty exciting. And then I rebelled in high school and played, of all things, lacrosse, which is the smallest, hardest team That's ball. That's a scary to... Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I was at the age where I could do it on my own and not have to ask my mom for permission to do it. And, uh, yeah, they didn't like that too much. But I only did it for two years. So okay. it was mostly Fair. watching sports, not playing. <laughs> Fair. And I, I played a little in high school, but I, I knew I wanted to be around sports kind of when I was growing up. And and kind of just knowing that if I wanted to have a career, I felt like I really needed to be around it in some way to like enjoy it. Um, did you feel that way when you went to college and kind of when you moved forward in life? Yes and no. It's kind of strange because it was such a roundabout way for me to get to where I am because mm-hmm. I did go to college. Uh, I went to community college first because I didn't have great grades in high school. I had un- uh undiagnosed ADHD, unbeknownst to everyone around me and myself. So I barely graduated high school. And I went to community college just because I didn't want to go straight into the workforce, which my dad wanted me to do. And I was actually a performing arts major, which is so goofy to think about. But I ended up taking some communications classes. I took radio classes and voice and diction classes and other things. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to go to four-year school. I'm going to transfer because I had the grades to do it. And that's when I got into wanting to be a sportscaster. And this was in the 90s when ESPN was it. And I annoyed my roommate to the point where she wanted to kill me because I would be up watching the 2.30 a.m. feel-good edition of SportsCenter while she had 8 o'clock classes. And because I was a communications major, we never had 8 o'clock classes. Like my earliest class was 10.10. And, you know, I studied everyone who did ESPN. And I chose SUNY Oswego to transfer to because Linda Cohn was class of 81 and Steve Levy was class of 87. And I thought, okay, can't get into Syracuse. Might as well go to Oswego. (laughs) I love, obviously during that time, sports center was it, like there was just nothing else that you wanted to watch or, or do anything. I mean, obviously you watch the games, but it was just such a prominent fake. Like you had to watch sports center. If you missed it, like you had nothing to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, I always loved watching Linda. I loved Stuart Scott. I felt like those, like, it was so cool that they could incorporate their personalities into what they were doing. And I felt like that was like such a good example. Did you feel that way when you watched Linda and like, obviously the New York connection as well? Yes. Yes. Because there was that New York connection there. And I loved watching the sports reporters and Jackie McMullen standing up to the guys on the show. And I always thought that was so great. And yeah, it's so funny because when you talk to someone who grew up in the 90s and wanted to be in sports, really ESPN was it. But I did watch CNN and I watched Nick Charles and Fred Hickman and all those people over there too. And I just really, that was my thing. I would 
actually tape things on VHS tape and just watch certain episodes of Sports Center over and over again and kind of see how they did everything. And I brought that into my um, news update position at WNYO in Oswego. I did do that. I did do some on the air work when I was in college. Um, when you got out of college, how did you kind of focus? Like, how did you end up where you are today with Locked On? I actually went into sales and I was in sales for a really long time. And, you know, I still watched sports. I still kept up with sports. I was on message boards, you know, back in the early days of the internet. And the one thing that kind of got me back into wanting to do sports in a roundabout way was I applied to be on a documentary that ended up being on HBO. It was called Nine Innings from Ground Zero. And it was about the Yankees World Series run during 2001. And I was featured kind of prominently for someone who wasn't directly affected by 9-11. And I didn't embarrass my parents. I didn't embarrass my friends. And it was a really fun experience. And I, I loved being on camera and talking about sports. And I kind of got the bug to do it again then. Uh, but it still took me a while to get into this. And I had to do the writing track first. And then I got into podcasting. How did you feel like your writing helped you? I went to journalism school originally, and and I've done like different forms of media since then. But I always felt like having that base of like knowing how to write and communicate that way always helped me um, moving forward. To me, do you feel like that way too? Yes, um, I originally started blogging for free on a network that was just websites for everything: baseball, basketball, football, even Formula One. And every blog was run by a woman, and it was called Eris Sports. And it was about 12 years ago. And that's how I got my start. Then people started noticing my writing and asking me to contribute to their websites. And then eventually, about three years in, I got my first paid gig, which felt really great. And I thought to myself, wow, people are actually asking me to write for them and pay me to do it. And going back to the high school thing, I failed English twice. Not because I don't know English, just because the ADHD made it yeah. so I couldn't read and I never read my assignments. So right. um, the fact that someone wanted to pay me to write was unbelievable to me. And then it just snowballed into, at one point I was writing for four different outlets in 2016, 2017, baseball prospectus, hardball times, beyond the box score and fan rec sports. Is that kind of crazy to think, you know, a couple of years before you were just writing for free on a blog and then all of a sudden you've got like four jobs that you're doing at once? Yes. And it was, I loved it because I'm the type of writer, you tell me what to write, I'll do it. You tell me the word count, I'll do it. I'll get it done in the time that you need me to get it done. And I, I loved it. I really did. I'm like, wow, I'm actually getting paid to watch sports and write about it. You know, not like a beat writer, but on my own time and in my own space and not having to worry about going from stadium to stadium. And I, I absolutely loved it. I loved it so much. How does that transition into podcasting? Obviously, you get to use your own voice when you're writing, but then to, to put that into, you know, podcast form, it's, it's really um, an everyday doing a show about it. How did you translate into that? And how did you kind of adapt once you got into that? Well, when I first got the locked on job, I would write full scripts out. And yep. I realized that I sounded too stiff when I was doing that. And then I turned them more into rundowns, but the scripts were kind of funny and I kind of made it so it wasn't so stiff, but now I don't write as much, you know, I'll do the descriptions and, you know, things like that. But yeah, writing kind of helps just to give you the order of how you want things to go because otherwise the show would just be a mishmash and, you know, people would tune out in two seconds if you didn't have a direction. And I think the writing helped me in that capacity. 
How do you feel like you've grown recently with, obviously you talked about how you felt like you were kind of stiff in the beginning and now you have like your own way of doing it. Do you feel like it's kind of become your own a little bit? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I'm so much more comfortable now. Um, you know, I attempted my first podcast 10 years ago and, you know, I did it for myself and it was, you know, goofy. I didn't even just talk about sports. I was even talking about soap operas and I feel like I'm so much more comfortable now and I I look forward to doing it every day, which is really nice. Like, it's nice to have a job that I look forward to doing every day because a lot of people don't get that luxury. And I feel blessed at my advanced age to finally put my broadcasting degree to work. Fair enough. How does it feel to, you know, not only that, you cover your team you grew up watching, um, which, you know, it's a family team too. So to have that aspect of it is pretty neat. Yeah, it is. I, I wish my dad was here to see it just because, you know, when I was first starting that bro- uh, podcasting thing 10 years ago, I joked with him that I wanted to give him a section of the show and called it, call it Gus's gripes. So he could just complain about the Yankees for a whole segment. Um, you know, he passed away nine years ago, but he did get to see um, some of my writing for ESPN. He got to see, um, I wrote in a commemorative Derek Jeter magazine. So he saw our last name, in glossy print, which he was very proud of. So I was excited that he saw that. But I think he'd, I think he'd get a kick out of this if he were still here. Sounds like he would, absolutely. <laughs> um, let's go back and talk a little bit about um, some of the people we watched when we were kids, right? We talked a little bit about Linda Cohn. Um, I think you mentioned to me earlier, Robin Roberts was a big person for me to watch, um, to kind of see her and then to do so many things as well. Like she really had her hand in a little bit of everything. Can you talk about that versatility? Obviously, that's a huge part of what we do. Yeah, yeah, it's um it's amazing for us when we were growing up just to even see women on TV mm-hmm. and then, you know, seeing women of color doing so many things on TV sports related. And it feels kind of strange that in 2023 people still have a problem <laughs> with that. Yep. You know, I would have hoped when I was in college and people looked at me sideways when I said I wanted to be a broadcaster and in sports, uh, that we would have evolved in the past 27-ish years since then, but we haven't. But it was really good to see that many women. And it wasn't just Robin and Linda. I mean, there were so many women on ESPN. And that I feel like they were the first ones to really get us to believe that we could do this while we were growing up. For sure. And I think for Robin, for me, is like, it's so cool that she does what she does now. And she's obviously had the sports background and she's like all over the place. And then when a big sports interview comes up, she's doing that on GMA. Um, I do want to touch upon too, just like that representation as like the LGBTQ community, especially Robin now, she's very open about that. Um, That's huge too, because especially when you don't see anyone like yourself on TV, to be able to see that and see someone be open, that's such a huge experience to see. Yeah. For me, I didn't realize things about myself until only a few years ago. But looking back, thinking about it, I was kind of embarrassed that I didn't realize those things about myself. I was always, I always considered myself an ally. You know, um, I have family members in the LGBTQ community also and friends growing up with. And, you know, when I realized, oh yeah, um, I'm so for it because I'm part of it. And now it's, you know, Oh, okay. I'm one of those people now. So I hope to do a good job representing for other people who are coming up and wanting to do what we do. And hopefully I do a good job of that. I think that's part of it too, because there's a lot of people that figure things out later on. And and then when they see it now, it's a little more obvious, right? So if you can be the representation that you might have wanted at that time, that's always 
really cool thing to be. Um, going forward, what are some things that you want to do either like looking forward, like what's something you want to add to your show or you want to, you know, bring to your show that you haven't done yet? I would like to get the nerve to ask people onto the show. I had David Cohen on a few years ago, but we're friendly. So it was easy for me to ask him, but I would love to get Susan Waldman on. I would love to talk to Meredith Morakovitz of yes. Um, I just need to get the nerve to do that. I've been doing my show for nearly five years now, and I still have that issue of what if they say no? And who cares if someone says no, that's not, you know, it's not one of the worst things in the world for someone to say no. They say no, you move on and ask someone else. But I have to drill that into my head. Same here. I mean, it's that imposter syndrome, right? You're like, oh, I can't do this, but you are doing it. You're actively doing it. And I feel like sometimes if I'm not doing it, I'm not like actively scaring myself, then it's not a good challenge, um, <laughs> which is helpful to remind myself. Stacy, you've done a lot of different things. Then sports media, we talked a little bit about representation as someone that, you know, does sports and is in sports media and is also part of the LGBT community. What do you, do you have any advice for someone that's in that spot and kind of thinking about getting into this job and what that means? Or, or just, do you try to be just a good example? I try to be a good example. Um, and I feel like there are so many people in the community who are now involved in sports or people like me who didn't realize they were in the community and now are. And, you know, I have a few friends who have come out as non-binary, as queer, who were with me actually at Era Sports too. And I feel like you just have to gravitate toward like-minded people and look for people like you and just be yourself. Like it's really about being yourself, no matter what anyone says about you, because I've had people say really horrible things about me and I kind of don't care because mm -hmm. I like myself. And I think that um, I do my job well, I enjoy doing my job and I hope it comes across that way. And if anyone wants to watch me do it and you know how I navigate through this as a person in the queer community, um, I welcome that. And if anyone's watching this and wants to talk to me about it, I would, you know, DM me <laughs> on Twitter. My handle is there. Um, reply to my tweets on Twitter. I am an open book and I will help anyone who needs it. That's so great. And it's so true. It's trying to be your best self. It's a lot easier said than done, of course, to, of rep course. to be yourself, especially <laughs> in this job. But that's just the best way to do it. And I think as you grow a little bit older, it gets a little bit easier as it goes along. Yes. So that's great advice. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that performing arts background of yours. How does that come back around now that you're on the mic and kind of, it's a little bit, I wouldn't say it's acting per se, but you are a performer. Right. We are, we're performers. And I feel like my improv background kind of came in handy there sometimes. Um, that was one of my favorite classes to do, uh, to be real in community college. It was so much fun. I was a little bit better thinking on my feet in my twenties than I am now, but I, I'm okay. Um, I do think the interesting thing for the performing arts was, you know, we took the voice and diction classes and I will tell you right now, I was horrified when I first heard my New York accent that for we, cause what we did was they recorded us making speeches, the very beginning of the semester, the middle and the end. And I have that first tape somewhere in this house. And if I find a VCR, I should play it because I couldn't, you, you don't hear your own accent really. And then when you do, I was absolutely horrified. And people tell me now, they, they say, well, you don't sound too much like a New Yorker. I said, well, I learned American standardized English thanks to my performing arts degree. So my New York 
slips out when I'm angry at, you know, Hal Steinbrenner or Brian Cashman. But for the most part, I try to, that really stuck into my brain. The improv background and the voice injection classes have really helped with the podcasting. And I feel like if someone wants to do podcasting and they have any kind of classes like that, that aren't even associated with a college or a university, and you, you, you find some sort of like troop that you want to work with, this actually really helps with this sort of performance. And it's just the repetition too. Like you get there eventually. It just seems really weird at first and talking different ways is is very difficult or just projecting, you know, in general, just yeah. obviously that kind of voice you put on a little bit is a little bit different. So I completely understand where you're coming from. Um, I know you mentioned a little bit earlier, kind of, you know, you get those comments from people. Obviously everything we do has comment section. Everybody likes to have chime in on whatever they want to chime in on. And I, I'm sure you get this as well as everybody else does, but you get a lot of comments that have absolutely nothing to do with what you're saying, or they just think that you don't know what you're talking about. How do you kind of deal with that? Um, and still, you know, come to work and do your best job every day. Uh, I ignore them usually, um, you know, <laughs> because if I didn't ignore them, I would cry all the time and we don't need yeah. to do that, you know? And we all get it. Everyone gets comments like that, no matter who they are, no matter how small their show is, no matter how big their show is, everyone gets comments because, you know, the internet has made it easier for people to do that sort of thing. And you just have to remember that, you know, these people are just either projecting their bad feelings onto you and don't actually really think that way about you. And they're just being jerks. And yeah, I kind of try to ignore it. Because if I didn't, I'd be fighting with people in my comment section. We don't need that. <laughs> my mom's always the one in the comment section fighting. I'm like, please stop rating them. This is not helping at all. <laughs> yeah, my brother actually did that one time. The first time I had an article published on ESPN, it was in 2014. It was the night that, um, was it Brian? Uh, Ryan Braun hit um, Gene Segura in the head with his bat because he was twirling it. Yep. And there really wasn't anything else happening that night. So the editor at ESPN is like, you know, write about that. So it was just a matter of fact, kind of an article. And someone commented, this is the worst article I've ever read. And my brother's like, what is this guy doing? I said, James, this is just how it is. It's yeah. okay. I know it's not the worst article ever written because I, I've read some really bad things and I haven't, it's fine. Don't worry about it. But he still gets very, my brother gets very defensive sometimes. And I have to tell him to relax a bit, that this is how it is. That's a good way to go about it. I feel like I always, especially when I started out, I would always take myself super seriously because I just felt like I never got the benefit of the doubt, right? Like if a, if a man messes up a stat, I feel like they're like, oh, he just forgot such and such. Whereas me, it's like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know that sport. You don't know what it is. How do you kind of balance? How do you try to balance the two where it's like, I know what I'm talking about, but I also want to be my fun self and, and kind of put those two together, but also be taken seriously. Yeah. You know, when I was writing, it was hard for me to do that. And I I kind of stayed away from pieces that were too statsy because I saw other people, especially women, get attacked for writing stuff like that. And I stayed away from that for a really long time until I started working for Baseball Prospectus and Beyond the Box Score. And then I found that um, I wasn't getting attacked by people, which was, I was thinking to myself, I wonder why. And I think it was because, and I, I hate saying this, but I feel like women and non-men have to kind of 
make it so they're not so confident in a way, but I've become more confident now because now I realize who cares what these people think. But when I first started writing, I really stayed away from that because that's what would get you attacked because God forbid a woman, you know, tries to make it seem like they know sports, someone will attack them within two seconds. And it took me a long time to get comfortable enough to think, I know what I'm talking about. I have more than 40 years of experience watching baseball, and I know exactly what I'm talking about. And if anyone thinks I don't, they're wrong. And that's how I navigate through <laughs> my days doing my show now because it's, I'm too old for nonsense like that, you know? And I know what I'm talking about, and they just need to realize that I do. It's the beauty of getting to that place where you're like, oh, wait, I know what I'm saying. It's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got it covered. So before we end the show, we do want to highlight an organization we are working with in an effort to support paving the way for future generations faced with less favorable opportunities. State Farm and Locked On will be giving a donation to the incredible organization Everyone On for every host that we feature on this series. The mission of Everyone On is to unlock opportunity by connecting families and underserved communities to affordable internet services and digital literacy training. So doing so creates significant positive change in communities and society as a whole. A big thank you to our good neighbors at State Farm for their support on behalf of our hosts and helping pave the way for so many others in our communities like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. Stacy. we appreciate you joining us, of course, and for helping pave the way and sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. If you're looking for the most comprehensive NFL draft coverage this offseason, look no further than the Locked On NFL Scouting Podcast. Join the draft dudes, Kyle Krabs and Joe Marino, as they go position by position through the NFL free agent class and into the star-studded crop of college stars who will be selected in the 2024 NFL Draft. If you want to know who your favorite NFL team should be adding to its roster, you need to check out Locked On NFL Scouting, available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.